welcome to COG, where we discuss topical issues in women's health. Today's conversation in obstetrics and gynaecology focuses on the prevention of preterm birth. First up, Ted chats with Scott White, a maternal fetal medicine specialist from the King Edward Memorial Hospital in Perth, about the work they are doing and the success they've had in Western Australia with reducing preterm birth rates. Then, Ted and I discuss cervical length screening, both for women with and without risk factors. After that, I talked to Dr. Anders Fabersvetsen, our resident grumpy obstetrician, for a critical review of the evidence around fetal fibronectin. As always, we conclude with Journal Club, where Ted and I discuss recent publications on preterm birth. My name is Rachel Nugent. I'm a senior ONG trainee on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, and you can contact me via our website, cog.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes, Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynaecology. First up, I'm joined by my co-host, Associate Professor Ted Weaver, a senior obstetrician and gynaecologist on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Hi, Ted. Hi, Rachel. I think we've assembled quite a good program for our listeners today, and this is but scratching the surface of an incredibly complex topic. There are lots of world experts in this that have been grappled with this problem for years without really being able to fix it. And certainly for me, after a career that's lasted over 30 years, it's frustrating to see how little progress we've made in being able to prevent babies being born too early. And worldwide, it's a huge problem with around about 15 million babies every year worldwide being born preterm. And in Australia, we know the rate is about one in eight births, But for Indigenous women, it's even higher than that. It's up to about one in seven. And we know that these babies being born early carries a lot of potential for short-term and also long-term morbidity. And so I think it's important that we're now seeing a number of initiatives looking at how we can reduce the rate of prematurity. So today on Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynaecology, it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Scott White, to the microphone. Scott works at King Edward Hospital in Perth, where he's a specialist in maternal medicine. And Scott has been integral in the investigation that's been called the Western Australian Preterm Birth Prevention Project, which was published earlier this year in the American Journal, detailing successes in reducing the rates of preterm birth in Western Australia. So Scott's here to talk about that. So welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. Now, Scott, can you just tell our audience just basically what the Western Australian Preterm Birth Prevention Initiative was, how you went about doing it, and a little bit of a discussion at the end about the results, because clearly that's the important part. Okay, great. So we uh, recognised that uh, there was a significant rate of preterm birth in Western Australia as the rest of Australia, and, and we felt that that was something that could be safely lowered. And in an effort to do that, we thought that we could significantly improve the outcomes for our babies and our mothers. So in 2014, we initiated what we call the West Australian Preterm Birth Prevention Initiative. Now that involved a statewide program of awareness and a few interventions looking to, to reduce the rate of preterm birth in our community. And we thought Western Australia was, was a particularly uh, unique place to trial this sort of initiative, given our geographical isolation and, and our relative percent of population. So we rolled the project out uh, in, in November 2014 with three main components. So the first was a process of public education. The second was a process of outreach to, to GPs, to midwives, to stenographers uh, and to our fellow obstetricians. Uh, and the third was the, the start of a dedicated preterm birth prevention clinic at our, at our um, tertiary hospital at King Edward Memorial in, in Subiaco. So in terms of the public education, uh, we were very 
fortunate to receive some funding uh, to to partner with uh, our uh, our state newspaper, uh, and we published a series of, of glossy magazines, basically written uh, for a lay audience, uh, where we uh, talked about the importance of preterm birth and things like smoking and nutrition and weight and general health in pregnancy, but also more specific things like like pap smears and uh, and previous cervical surgery, uh, like uh, smoking reduction, like uh, uh, the importance of attending for antenatal care. Um, then we, as part of our statewide outreach program, we did a, a tour of all of the units that provide obstetric care in Western Australia. Um, and over the course of a year or so, we managed to visit all of those and we provided the, the people who were on the ground providing care for, for our pregnant women um, and talked to them about the important uh, interventions that we thought could be undertaken. Uh, there were seven, seven main interventions in the initiative. Uh, the first being that everyone, every pregnant woman should have her cervical length assessed uh, as routine in the mid-trimestral pregnancy, that those who had a short uh, cervix less than 25 millimetres should be given vaginal progesterone, that those women with a history of uh, uh, spontaneous preterm birth in previous pregnancies uh, should be given uh, vaginal progesterone from 16 to 37 weeks. Uh, those women with a particularly short cervix, so less than 10 millimetres, be considered for cervical saccage. Uh, or women should uh, be advised to, to reduce or cease smoking in pregnancy. That no pregnancy should be ended before 38 weeks uh, gestation without a, a valid medical indication. And that a new preterm birth prevention clinic should be started for the particularly high risk. Mm -hmm. And what, what was the compliance of women who you would de you deemed to be worthy of an intervention? Did they Were they generally compliant? Yeah, they were. I mean, vaginal progesterone is something that tends to be very well tolerated. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's expensive. Uh, it's not PBS funded. Um, and so it's difficult to obtain outside of our uh, tertiary unit. Um, but for, for women who can obtain it through us, it's not expensive. That's it's about a dollar a day. Um, and they're, they're generally very compliant. Um, there are some, some side effects with it, but nothing of great significance, and our women tend to tend to take it very well. And as you know, cervical length screening has been a, a vexed issue. I mean, the, the various methodologies have been put forward for measuring um, cervical length vaginally. Um, but given that a lot of our radiology isn't done in in a in a, a tertiary hospital or even a regional hospital, but it is done in the private sector. How much trouble did you have in convincing people that they needed to have some sort of some measure of cervical length? Yeah, this is one of the greatest challenges of, of implementing the, the preterm birth initiative. Uh, so we uh, were very fortunate to have one of our very senior um, sonographers, who's who's a very well known and respected sonographer in, in Western Australia and Australia in general, um, do her PhD in, in looking at the implementation of this recommendation. Uh, we took a fairly pragmatic approach. So obviously, the gold standard is is um, is transvaginal ultrasound. Um, to assess cervical length, but uh, evidence suggests it's reasonable to do an initial abdominal assessment and that if the cervical length is more than 35 millimetres at abdominal scan, then that um, predicts quite confidently that the vaginal length will be more than 25 millimetres, which we define as a normal cervical length. Mm -hmm. And we know that, that um, you know, women that, say, are in the, in the lowest quintiles for economic advantage are more likely to, do, to deliver preterm. Do you have a clear idea of the women in Western Australia, of what, what their social profiling is like, if you can call it that. The ones that delivered preterm, were they more likely to be, say, Indigenous? Were they more likely to smoke? Were they more likely to be suffering in the sort of quintiles of disadvantage? Uh, uh, yes, 
So, so like the rest of Australia, like the rest of the world, really, um, socioeconomic disadvantage and geographical isolation uh, are significant predictors of, of preterm birth risk. Um, and we have both of those things in, in spades in Western Australia. Um, and in particular, uh, our, our women in our Indigenous communities tend to have both of those. So they're both geographically isolated um, and they're socioeconomically uh, disadvantaged um, and have, have uh, in some cases, quite limited access um, to medical care. And those women have a very elevated preterm birth risk compared to the West, rest of uh, um, the Western Australian population. So can you just detail the results of the study? I understand that you achieved a reduction in preterm births of around about 7%. Mm-hmm. Um, could you just go through the results and in which cohort of um, the preterm birth cohort that you achieved the greatest result? Uh, so we... Um, so the background rate of preterm birth in Western Australia sits around 8.5%. So we have about 2,800 preterm births in Western Australia every year. Um, the, the greatest reduction that we saw, so in, so in the first full year after the implementation of this program, the greatest reduction that we saw uh, was in, in those late preterm births. And that's kind of to be expected, isn't it, given that they the, the represent the majority of, of preterm uh, babies born. Uh, so overall, we saw a 7.6% reduction in preterm birth uh, from about 8.5% down to uh, just under 8%. Um, and that uh, represents probably about 200 less preterm births in, in Western Australia in that year than we would have otherwise expected. Um, so obviously, we saw significant reductions in, in the 30, uh, those 32 to 36 weeks. Um, we saw uh, less, um, less uh, significant, um, but still a trend to reductions in Seven to thirty-two week group, um, and again less significant statistically, but but more valid, uh, or perhaps more important reductions in those less than twenty-seven weeks. And what did that translate to in terms of cost savings for nursery care, or did you do a, an economic analysis that, of the that, success? Of the that project? economic analysis is still in process, um, but we know that the cost of neonatal care just in our hospitals fifty-four million dollars for preterm babies every year, um, and with a reduction of. Um, Particularly very early, so we we uh, are likely to have prevented something like fifty um, preterm births uh, at less than thirty two weeks, and those obviously account for the majority of that cost. Um, and so, it's likely, although the analysis is still ongoing, that there's been a significant cost savings with this intervention. And where will the project go now? Well, given that you've you put in this huge educational um, initiative, that you've been publicising the project to the to the um, Western Australian population. Where do you next see the, I know John Newnham talks about the next level of fruit that you can harvest. Where do you think that will come from? Yeah, and, and I think that analogy is quite a good one. So we probably have just picked the low hanging fruit here. And so yeah, we've probably done the easy work uh, yeah. to start with. And, and certainly the next the, the next reduction is likely to be even more challenging. Uh, and so, I mean, we aim to, to reduce the, the rate of preterm birth over by 30% over five years, and, and 8% in one year is not a bad start on that. Um, the uh, Some of the challenges that we note are that the, the outreach and the public education has probably had a greater uh, impact on preterm birth rates than we thought it would, uh, and that's something that you can't stop. Um, at least initially, it's something that needs to be reinforced for quite some time, and, 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 it, and that's likely to, to require more of an ongoing thought um, the one of the, this is going to be controversial one of the next uh, challenges for us to take is, is the private sector 
Uh, so the public sector has been quite willing to to entertain this, and some of the some of the differences in the private sector have, have uh, limited some of the applicability of, of our work. And there's a significant uh, the private sector is a, is a substantial component of of obstetric uh, of work in, in, in Western Australia. So that uh, that's something important that we need to assess. Um, and then I guess it's a matter of, of rolling this out uh, on a wider scale. Mm. And so have other states indicated interest in copying your methodology? Yeah, so, so there are a couple of um, other states interested in, in uh, fostering a partnership to, mm. to roll that out. Um, and that's certainly something that we're, we're very excited to entertain. And so people that are interested in this, you have a dedicated website to this? We do. So, so anyone who's interested, we have www.thewholenine-months.com.au. Um, register trademark. Well done, John. That's a good note to end. Thank you very much, Scott. That was Ted Weaver discussing the Western Australian Preterm Birth Prevention Initiative with Scott White, a lead investigator on the initiative. So Ted, an important component of that intervention is universal cervical length screening. And today I'd really like to talk a little bit about cervical length screening for the prevention of preterm birth. At present, the Ranscog recommendation is for women with a singleton pregnancy and other risk factors such as a previous preterm birth or a second trimester loss or previous cervical excision procedures like a LETS or a cone biopsy and sometimes in women who are symptomatic. But should it become a screening tool for all singleton pregnancies, even women who are considered low risk? Yeah, Rachel, I think this is a really important thing. It's salutary to remember that we really haven't made any difference to the rate of prematurity over the years. And we know that it's a major contributor to both perinatal morbidity and also perinatal mortality. And we know that the, um, a short cervix is associated a lot with preterm birth. However, there are a number of confounders in lots of the studies in that women sometimes who have quite a short cervix do not deliver early, whereas other women who've got cervices that are over 25 millimetres at, say, 24 weeks gestation will still deliver early. So there's a lot to this, and um, it's obviously a complicated area of clinical research and an evolving area of clinical medicine in obstetrics. But I think before we go and change our practice, we should be very mindful of the current evidence and not just introduce routine cervical length screening for all without good evidence to back up our, our practice. So let's talk first about what we do at the moment. The indications for cervical length screening as it stands in Australia are previous preterm birth or second trimester loss, women with congenital uterine abnormalities, previous cervical excision procedures, and sometimes in women who have symptoms of preterm labour. Currently, we don't recommend screening in women with a cerclage, twin pregnancies, preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes, or a placentum previa. Now, some of the areas of controversy in this relate really to, should we introduce universal cervical length screening in low-risk women with singleton pregnancies who've got no history of prior preterm birth in an endeavor to prevent preterm birth? And this is something that lots of researchers are looking at and something that the Western Australian preterm birth study that Scott White talks about earlier in the podcast, they're looking to address some of these matters. It's interesting to remember that the current Cochrane Review on cervical length measurement for prevention of preterm birth, which came out in 2013, suggested that there was insufficient evidence to recommend routine cervical screening for asymptomatic or even symptomatic pregnant women with transvaginal ultrasound measurement of cervical length. And to me, this really seems to contrast with the current practice in many of our tertiary institutions 
where cervicolin is used as a predictor of preterm birth risk, and the management of those women is tailored according to their cervical length measurement. Yeah, I think that's probably highlighted by the fact that the Cochrane Review is a 2013 review and a lot has been published in this area since then. That's right. As we said, it is an emerging area of clinical medicine. And interestingly too, we don't know unequivocally if cervical length screening is useful in women who've had previous treatments for cervical dysplasia. So numbers of our women will have had a previous LETS procedure or a loop excision of a portion of their cervix, or even less frequently a cone biopsy. And we know that the relative risk of preterm birth with either of these procedures is increased. It's it's around 1.6. But even in those women who seem to self-select into a higher area of risk, we don't know what the exact place of cervical length screening in those women. So routinely we start screening women between 16 and 24 weeks. Uh, Usually this is done at the morphology ultrasound. And we'll talk a little bit now about the methodology. So it's really important when women are being screened for their cervical length that it's done to a standard protocol. An average of three cervical lengths are taken over five minutes with the shortest best measurement being used. Transabdominal assessment is commonly undertaken uh, in the first instance and a TA assessment with a partially full bladder which shows a cervical length greater than 35mm precludes a TV length of 25mm with over 95% sensitivity. A major issue for this approach is that often the cervix isn't well seen. So in 60% of women due to fetal position uh, or obesity, which is becoming increasingly common, the cervix isn't well seen on TA scan and a TV scan is therefore necessary. And I think it is important that these measurements are done to a standard protocol. And one of the problems that we have with doing this is the training of sonographers and other people in doing this. And various institutions such as the Fetal Medicine Foundation in London have developed some um, training methods uh, to use in this situation, but it really depends, I guess, on the penetration of those programs and how well sonographers are trained. And I think it's important to point out that trained personnel are required due to the heterogeneity around measurement, and we should be aiming for some sort of intra-observer variation of between 5 and 10%, and certainly over that is, is going to be unacceptable. The other issue for me is is that it seems that this is something that should be relatively easy to perform at the time of a point of care ultrasound. There's been an absolute proliferation of ultrasound machines in our birth suites and it seems to me that the person who's seeing the woman and assessing her risk of preterm birth, which could be an obstetrician or an obstetric registrar, is really well placed to be able to use ultrasound and measure cervical length as part of their assessment. And to me, this would have a number of advantages because a clinician being involved in that care would be aware of all the clinical aspects of of that particular woman's pregnancy and can really incorporate the cervical length measurement if it's measured to a standard protocol and measured accurately. It could be really helpful in, in helping to provide proper clinical management for that particular patient. And I think that would be much preferable to sending the woman off to a standalone provider where that standalone provider may have had perhaps training that isn't as rigorous or as good as we might like. And so this is something I know that the Ranscog Ultrasound Group is having a look at, and I think it's something that will evolve over time. But um, I think it's important that our trainees have a good grounding in ultrasound 
use in pregnancy, and that's certainly something that's improved in the last few years at the college. But again, something that will no doubt develop and adapt over time. So Ted, we've been talking a little bit about the use of cervical length screening in the general population, not just in the high-risk population. And I'd just like to quickly touch on the WHO characteristics of a good screening test with respect to cervical length screening and preterm birth. So I think we'd both agree that this condition is an important health problem. Preterm birth affects about 8% of pregnancies in Queensland. Yeah, it's similar in the rest of Australia. There should be a treatment for the condition. At the moment, we have some treatments for the condition. We know that we can insert cervical circulations if the cervix is less than 25 millimetres before 24 weeks gestation. And we know that there is some place for progesterone, although as we talk about in this podcast, that story is by no means fully told. The facilities for diagnosis and treatment should be available. Now, I think this is the biggest barrier to routine cervical length screening with the training of sonographers and radiologists in making this measurement. I would agree. Training in obstetric and gynecological ultrasound for radiologists is only a very small part of their training program. And again, for sonographers, it's difficult to be sure that that sonographers are doing it according to the protocol that we would like and delivering the accuracy that we would like with very little inter-observer variation. There should be a latent or asymptomatic stage of the disease. I think uh, preterm birth fits that quite well. There should be a test for the condition, and and cervical length screening is the test. Uh, In some populations, it has a positive predictive value of 20 to 30%, which isn't excellent, but it's better than the background rate of 8%. The test should be acceptable to the population. So I think culturally, depending on where you are, the acceptability of a transvaginal ultrasound may be reduced in some populations, but certainly in Western Australia, they've had a good uptake with the varying population they have over there and also including a large Aboriginal cohort in their population. Number seven, the natural history of the disease should be adequately understood. What do you think about that one? Well, I think we know something about this, but I think there's a, a lot more that we, that we just don't know. I think that this etiology of preterm birth is so complicated, dealing with you know, structural factors in the cervix, dealing with infection, dealing with social and economic hardship, and it's, it's multifactorial. So I think we're going to need a multi-pronged approach to deal with this, but I think that certainly the, if we look at the, at the final common pathway of preterm birth, it is certainly associated with cervical shortening and you know, early cervical dilatation. Yeah, I think we've got a lot of work to do on the natural history of preterm birth. I don't think that's really well understood. There should be an agreed policy on who to treat, uh, and I think our algorithms are pretty well established as to who gets progesterone. Yeah, and who gets the cervical circulation. I think it's only proper that we try to provide evidence-based guidelines in this area because certainly I think we have to remember that you know in the past cervical circulation has been used in lots of women in whom we perhaps would not use it now with sometimes deleterious outcomes. Again, we have to remember that these sorts of surgical procedures are not without risk to women and we can never forget the first rule of medicine is to do no harm. The total cost of finding a case should be economically balanced in relation to medical expenditure as a whole. Uh, And I believe the cost-effectiveness studies already done on screening low-risk women have showed uh, a cost-benefit, but there's more work to be done there also. Case finding should be a continuous process, not just a once-and-for-all project, and I think that's pretty easily done in our uh, obstetric population. 
and the test used should be sensitive. I think that that's a big barrier for cervical length screening, but it's the best test that we have in an important health problem and definitely something we should look at. I agree. So, from one tool for predicting preterm birth to another, just as cervical length is an important tool for predicting preterm birth, so too is the detection of fetal fibronectin on vaginal swab. Today on COG, I'm happy to be talking with Dr. Anders Faber-Svensson, a second-generation obstetrician and gynaecologist. We've started a new segment on COG called the Grumpy Obstetrician because Dr. Faber-Svensson can sometimes take issue with the way we apply evidence in obstetrics. He's joining me to unpack fetal fibronectin and the evidence behind it. Thanks for joining me on COG, Anders. Thanks for having me. So the fetal fibronectin is a test we commonly use in Queensland uh, and it informs our decision to transfer for obstetricians working in regional centres to move people to tertiary centres where preterm babies can be better looked after by our neonatal colleagues. Yeah, fetal fibronectin is interesting. It looks like it has a place as one of many factors that may help us to quantify a woman's risk of going into preterm labour. But I take issue with how it's being used in Queensland at the at the moment. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the original Eastman trial where the 99% negative predictive value comes from, uh, as it was meant to be a study looking at women who were at high risk of preterm labour and symptomatic. It seems that a lot of the women included had very few symptoms and would probably not be considered as um, having threatened preterm labour in our system. So I think um, as obstetricians, we're prone to jump at results, at tests that might give us black and white results because we work in an environment where those things are hard to come by. And um, it's easier to blame a test for being wrong than your own clinical judgment. But I think there's some evidence to suggest that our clinical judgment is probably just as good as the fetal fibronectin. The dangerous thing about using a negative predictive value from a study like this is that it relies on the prevalence of the condition in the studied population. And if we are doing fetal fibronectin on women who have a higher risk of preterm labour, then our negative predictive value will be not quite as good. And we may also be then for- falsely reassured and beeping women who, who are in fact at a higher risk of preterm labour than we think. Some of the women had less than four contractions per hour. Yeah, something in the, I think, around about three quarters of women had less than four contractions an hour, which if you used your clinical judgment, you probably wouldn't transfer someone like that as long as they didn't change their cervix. And it'd be hard to see how doing a fetal fibronectin in in a patient like that would influence your management. Yeah, right. Um, And certainly uh, in my practice, someone contracting less than four times in an hour would not score this test. No. The problem where fetal fibronectin may increase your cost and increase intervention if is you do if you do a test in a woman with you know in under pretty circumstances you would be happy to say she's not in labor and at low risk of preterm labor if you choose to do a fetal fibronectin to in a way cover your cover your back and it's positive then even though the positive predictive value again because of the low prevalence of preterm labor in 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 the population started in the Peaceman trial um, because the positive predictive value is is not very good then you are transferring women who are really at lower risk of, of delivery and potentially increasing cost and increasing convenience particularly for the families I think we underestimate how much um, 
of a disruption it is for a family to to be moved to another town, another city, and uh, how much that uh, influences their family life and their income. It's hard on many levels. So I guess the point of critically analysing the Peaceman trial is that the population used in the trial isn't similar to the population to whom we apply the test. Hmm. And so perhaps quoting the numbers that we tend to quote, certainly in my practice I tell women, I'm doing the test, if it's negative, there's 99% chance that you won't go into labour in the next couple of weeks, Mm. whereas um, if it's positive, the chance of you actually going into labour is low, around 40%, um, but we take all the measures to protect your baby, which Mm. include nifedipine steroids, transfer to a tertiary centre. And from what you're saying, the population that I'm applying that test to is very different because they've all been already been selected out by my Mm. own clinical judgement to the population that my stats of my negative and positive predictive value have been applied, yeah. have been drawn from. So the rate of preterm delivery within two weeks in the Peaceman trial was 3%. So negative predictive value for being recruited to the study was 97%. I think our clinical judgment is better than reaching a 3% rate of preterm delivery in women that we're concerned about. You also end up doing fetal fibronectins in women who you are clinically very convinced are at very high risk of preterm labour. And in those women, the fetal knowledge of the fetal fibronectin result doesn't really change your management either. If they continue to contract, if their cervix is dilating, and you will transfer them anyway. I think the question that's unanswered in Queensland is what impact doing fetal fibronectin has had on the outcome for women. So has it improved or reduced the rate of out-of-tertiary hospital uh, very preterm deliveries? Has it improved the outcomes for preterm delivered babies and has it reduced the rate of inappropriate transfer and what what impact has it had on cost i i suspect from anecdotal evidence that if anything it's increased our cost which is reflected in the uh, study in the american journal from last year looking at clinicians knowledge of fetal fibronectin results showing that it doesn't improve outcomes it doesn't reduce the rate of preterm labor uh, and increases cost so that study looked at both maternal and neonatal outcomes and found no difference between the groups knowledge of the fetal fibronectin and no knowledge of the fibronectin yeah. and found essentially that the outcomes were the same for both groups. Yeah. So clinical judgment is as good as the test when you're measuring outcomes. I think um, it's definitely time to reassess our reliance on fetal fibronectin and back to trusting our clinical judgment and hope that in the future there may be a a test that will give us black and white answers. I think it's interesting when you look at the overall cost, and so I'm always interested in health economics and the cost of the interventions Mm. that we institute. And again, and and this is common in obstetrics, this sounds like another intervention that we've taken up holus bolus because it gives us some certainty Mm. around um, our prediction of preterm birth. Um, it's something tangible that we can talk to women about and we've done that we've taken it up without actually analyzing how much it costs now a group in the american journal has analyzed that cost and found that fetal fibronectin doesn't impact outcomes but is slightly more expensive and so it stands to reason if it doesn't impact outcomes but costs more money then why are we doing it and i think in australia we haven't had a really good assessment of that and I think it's probably time that we did. The use of fetal fibronectin in algorithms to predict preterm labour that include other measures as well are interesting. 
looks from the literature like it does have a role, but um, again, without effective interventions, it's it's a bit hard to know what to do with uh, when you tell a patient they have a 15% risk of delivery before 28 weeks. Um, we could give them progesterone, we could do sutures, um, but other than that, we don't really have many interventions. We could choose to give them steroids, um, but it's not really... The information isn't as useful as it seems when you don't have effective um, interventions. And when you consider that in uh, Queensland is a big state, Australia is a big country geographically, a large landmass, mm. and these regional and remote places, practitioners can use the quantitative phytofibronectin to predict a risk of preterm delivery, and then they act on it. And as you said before, whole families move cities mm. to be closer to tertiary neonatal care if they've had this positive test, which ultimately we don't have the data around outcomes to mm. suggest that that's an effective way to treat people. Yeah, and you uh, you have to ask in, in the women who have that test, why did they have the test in the first place? Did that test add to the decision-making around this patient? Uh, you'd have to think that to, to qualify for having a fetal fibronectin test in the first place, they would have had some significant risk factors for preterm labour and probably been symptomatic as well. And um, if you're in a remote area, you would think that that's enough. And if you're relying on a negative predictive value from another study, you shouldn't be reassured by that as it doesn't necessarily reflect the risk of the patient in front of you. So it's probably worth mentioning the Cochrane Review on fetal fibronectin, which was last updated in 2008, so it was some time ago. That review was written by Vincenzo Bigella, who is one of the authors of the systematic review on fetal fibronectin mentioned from the American Journal of ONG last year. The findings from that review... So the findings from the Cochrane Review were that although fetal fibronectin has started to be commonly used, there is not sufficient evidence to recommend its routine use. They did find that there was an association between uh, knowledge of a fetal fibronectin result and uh, a lower incidence of preterm birth before 37 weeks, although this seems to have been disproven by the latest systematic review by the same author. So my view would be, unless we can find some Queensland-specific evidence for using fetal fibronectin and improving the uh, curacy, for lack of a better word, of our transfers, um, then... Um, we should probably stop using it and get back to using our clinical judgment. Mm. An area for future research. Indeed. Right, well, thank you for that summary, Dr. Faber-Svenson. It's been great having you on COG. Thank you for having me. That was grumpy obstetrician Dr. Anders Faber-Svenson and his squeaky chair discussing some of the evidence around fetal fibronectin. Next up on COG is Journal Club, and this week we'll be discussing some of the literature from the last 12 months around preterm birth. As always, you can find the references for the articles discussed on our website, cog.podbean.com, and I'll also post the references for the articles discussed with Anders on that website too. So this week on Journal Club, we'll be discussing three articles. The first is that Western Australian study uh, published in the AJOG in July of 2017, entitled Reducing Preterm Birth by Statewide Multifaceted Program, an Implementation Study. The authors are John Newnham, Scott White, and their co-authors. So when John presented this initially, he used an analogy of an apple tree where he looked at the low-hanging fruit, which was using treatments that we already use, so using uh, vaginal progesterone treatment, being able to accurately measure and identify cervical shortening, 
so that they put a lot of effort into making sure that cervical length could be measured accurately and appropriate interventions undertaken should there be a problem. And also, he made a big point of avoidance of non-medically indicated late preterm and early term birth because of, from a number of studies, not only in Western Australia but elsewhere, we know that there's a downside to being born early um, in terms of behaviours and learning and other such things as children age. And then the next bit of the apple tree that he looked at was the mid-hanging fruit, which was, we know that there's lots of preterm birth that's associated with infection. And currently, uh, one of the culprits that's most likely is the cerebar of urea plasma. And we need to have better identification and treatment of intrauterine inflammation and infection from such organisms. And it's interesting that there's now a new antibiotic out, solithromycin, which may help in management of these sorts of cases. And another thing that's proven difficult, but we know which is really intimately associated with preterm birth, is reduction of cigarette smoking, particularly just before and during pregnancy, and in particular in our Indigenous women, because anti-smoking messages have been pretty well done and pretty well accepted in the non-Indigenous community, but smoking rates in the Indigenous communities are you know, around somewhere 50%, which is way too high. The last bit of the apple tree that we looked at was the high-hanging fruit, which was really understanding the health and societal consequences for populations and individuals in transition. So looking at what we can do as a society to make the lot of women better. We know that if we improve poverty and improve education, um, we'll do something to improve reproductive outcomes. So mm. we need social policies such that, that, that we're... That we, that we can do this. These are the social determinants of health that we keep coming back to in this series. Coming back to, that we, we, we talked about in the first podcast of this series. So yes, it's, it's important. So why this study is, is impressive, I think, is, be, is because it, it's, it looks at one state, it looks at a, um, at, at a number of interventions, not only medical, but also um, some social interventions. And... Um, I think it's, it's, in, it's interesting that in the first year of the study, they reduced their preterm birth rate by 7%, which was statistically significant. And it'll be very interesting to see if, if they can reach their, what I think is an ambitious goal of reducing the preterm birth rate by 30%. It's something well worth following, and we'd hope that similar initiatives would follow in other states. Aim high, dare to try. That's right. So the take-home message for me, look, I too was impressed by the breadth of this study. Um, it's a coordinated and targeted approach which involves women, the community, healthcare practitioners, all the important stakeholders uh, who are interested in preventing preterm birth. And it shows that we can all have a meaningful impact on preterm birth rates. It's really exciting to see such an ambitious project make some inroads into the preterm birth rate in Western Australia. And I can't wait for it to be rolled out nationally and see the results there. Uh, I'm really looking forward to some more exciting research coming out of Western Australia. This statewide implementation study used a three-pronged approach with the sole aim of reducing the preterm birth rate in Western Australia. It addressed clinicians with an outreach program, addressed women and the community via a print and social media campaign the whole nine months, and established a new dedicated preterm birth clinic at the state's tertiary referral centre for women at highest risk. 
These combined interventions showed a 7.6 reduction in the singleton preterm birth rate since implementation of the program in Western Australia. This effect was significant for gestational ages from 28 to 37 weeks with no difference in stillbirth rates between groups. Further study will be required to delineate the relative contribution of the various components of the program, but it seems clear that a whole-of-health system and whole-of-community approach is a vital component to preventing preterm birth in developed countries. The second article we'll discuss today on Journal Club is entitled Prenatal Parental Depression and Preterm Birth, a National Cohort Study. It's by Lou and a few other authors and it was published in January of 2016 in the British Journal of ONG. Now this feeds into what we were talking about before regarding uh, the social determinants of health. This is a big national cohort study of Swedish data. It was mined from the Medical Birth Register from 2007 to 2012, and it looked at a total of over 366,000 singleton births. It also used a couple of other data registries to look at some medical and social data. The important medical registry that it accessed showed patients filling drug prescriptions and inpatient and outpatient encounters, indicating a diagnosis of mood disturbance. So what the authors did was look at both new and recurrent depression in both mothers and fathers and considered the outcomes of the different preterm birth categories, so very preterm birth and moderately preterm birth. So very preterm birth is birth before 32 weeks gestation and moderately preterm is between 32 and 36. They adjusted for a bunch of medical confounders and socio-demographic confounders, which is where these big Scandinavian data registries are really impressive, and the findings were really interesting. So the important findings were that for fathers, a new depression in the 12 months before conception or before the 24th week of the pregnancy is associated with an increased risk of very preterm birth with an odds ratio of 1.76. Interestingly, the sensitivity analysis showed that this risk exists only for women who are cohabiting with their affected partner. It appears that recurrent depression for fathers is not associated with an increased risk in preterm birth for the woman and that the highest risk is for new depression in the father. So for mothers, a diagnosis of new or recurrent depression is also associated with moderately preterm birth and this occurred in both groups of spontaneous preterm birth and medically indicated preterm birth. So what were the take-home practice points for you, Ted? I think this is interesting and it again shows the link between adverse mental health and poorer perinatal outcome. So I think there are lots of unexplored links here. And also, you know, it'd be nice if we had a happiness measure so that we can also see that if people are happy in their relationship, however that relationship is configured, then, you know, how much of a difference that would make to people's pregnancy outcome. So I, th- I think the main practice point for me was, that, was again, the highlighting the link between adverse mental health and poorer perinatal outcome. But it's interesting to me that, that for fathers, uh, that if they have new depression in the 12 months before conception or before the 24th week, that is associated with a risk of an increased risk of very preterm birth for mechanisms that I think are very um, difficult to understand. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, an area that we can really improve on in the public health sector, how we care for people's emotional and mental mm-hmm. health in, in a holistic care mm-hmm. setting and helping people develop uh, resilience and coping strategies to improve their mental health, which obviously in the long run will improve their physical health. 
This is a large retrospective cohort of Swedish data which shows new paternal and any maternal depression are potential risk factors for preterm birth in singleton pregnancies. Development of evidence-based detection tools and treatment facilities for the management of perinatal mental health for families is urgently required to improve health outcomes for women and their babies. So the next study that we're going to discuss was the Optimum study, which is vaginal progesterone prophylaxis for preterm birth. And this was a multi-centre randomised double-blind trial conducted across a number of centres in England. And the lead investigator of it was Jane Norman from Edinburgh, and there were many other luminaries in the British MFM establishment, such as Steve Robson and Andy Shannon, who also contributed patients. So it was a multi-centre, randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of progesterone, 200 milligrams, taken from 22 to 24 weeks gestation on pregnancy and infant outcomes in women at risk of preterm birth. And women were recruited from 65 UK centres and one Swedish hospital, and 610 women were allocated to placebo, and 618 to progesterone. And the baseline characteristics were similar across both groups. The women included had histories such as history of previous preterm birth, less than 34 weeks gestation, a short cervix, less than 25 millimetres on transvaginal ultrasound, or a positive fetal fibronectin with one other risk factor. And those risk factors included one of previous preterm birth, second trimester loss, preterm premature rupture of membranes, or a cervical procedure to treat abnormal smears, such as a LETS procedure or a cone biopsy. So the optimum study was designed to determine if progesterone prophylaxis affected neonatal or childhood outcomes. In the obstetric outcomes, there was no difference between fetal birth or death before 34 weeks gestation in, in either the treated group or the placebo group. And this, for me, was really quite controversial because it showed that women considered medium to high risk of preterm birth gained no benefit from progesterone therapy. And this is in contrast to some of the other studies. Although, admittedly, some of the early studies done by Fonseca and other people, use of progesterone improved length of gestation, but it didn't make a lot of difference to perinatal outcomes. So I think it's just another piece in the progesterone puzzle that there's still lots about preterm birth, as we said earlier in this podcast, that we still don't understand. The interesting thing was about the neonatal outcome. So the thing that I really like about this study, which I think generally studies in obstetrics are lacking, is that it followed up childhood data in infants and up to two years of age. I think a lot of obstetric research is really tunnel visioned in that it looks at immediate maternal outcomes like postpartum hemorrhage, preterm birth or complications in the immediate postpartum period but we don't get a lot of data on what happens to kids and so the important neonatal outcomes that they looked at it it was a composite score but it was outcomes of death, brain injury or bronchopulmonary dysplasia and it showed that there was no difference. There was some decrease in ultrasound diagnosed brain injury in the progesterone group But this may have no clinical effects since long-term studies have showed no correlation between this finding and longer-term neurosensory impairment. In the childhood outcome, standardised cognitive scores at two years of age showed no difference. In this study, it appears that the use of progesterone is safe for the infant, but it does raise some significant questions around efficacy as a treatment for preterm birth. So we need much more research in this area, which is, of course, ongoing in many units across the world. But, you know, I'm sure progesterone is just but one part of it. 
I think we're still a long way from solving this conundrum of preterm birth. This is a multi-centre, double-blind, randomised placebo-controlled trial of vaginal progesterone used from 22 weeks gestation of over a 1,000 women with risk factors for preterm birth. Vaginal progesterone was not associated with reduced risk of preterm birth in this trial. More evidence is required to clarify which women will benefit from treatment with vaginal progesterone in pregnancy. The study showed no difference in composite neonatal outcomes or long-term benefit or harm on outcomes in children at two years of age, suggesting the use of progesterone is safe in pregnancy. Well, that's a wrap for Episode 3, Preterm Birth. Our next conversation in obstetrics and gynaecology is going to be with Ian Hammond, who's a gynaecological oncologist from Perth and a great raconteur who has been head of the group charged by the federal government to look at modernising the Australian cervical cancer screening guidelines. And Ian and his group have published a new cervical cancer screening guideline, which is up to date with the latest evidence, and that's been out for consultation for a couple of years now, and we are now looking at the introduction of the new cervical cancer screening guidelines in December 2017. That's right. It's an exciting time in cervical cancer screening uh, in Australia. There are some radical changes coming to the way we screen for cervical cancer in this country. And I really encourage uh, all our listeners to please share this podcast widely um, to primary care physicians, gynecologists, uh, GPs, anyone who is an interested stakeholder in how we screen for cervical cancer. Our next conversation will be really relevant to their practice. I agree. Who better to talk to us than the man himself, Ian Hammond? So, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so via our Facebook page, Conversations in ONG. Don't forget we're on iTunes, or you can check out our website, cog.podbean.com. And now I'm also on Twitter, at SurfingOBGYN. Can't wait for next month. Signing off from Conversations in ONG.